If you would, open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. If worship is God renewing his covenant with his people, then what is preaching? Preaching is God showing us how we enter into relationship with him. And as we just sang in that song, how do we enter relationship with God? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jonah chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are asking that as you are renewing your covenant with us this morning, that you would grant us the faith to believe. It is all by your grace that we enter into that relationship with you. And yet we know that this is one of the chief means of that grace, of how you call us to yourself. So we're asking, boldly, we're asking that you would do it this morning. That you would not only give us faith for the first time, but give us faith again for the thousandth time. Holy Spirit, work a true work of faith and repentance in our hearts as we hear the word, your word. And we ask this. In the name of Christ, our covenant keeper. Amen. Have you ever wondered if God was really going to fulfill his promises? I love Jerry Seinfeld. And there's a joke Jerry Seinfeld talks about. I'll just summarize it because, you know, it's never good whenever you try to repeat someone else's joke. But Jerry Seinfeld talks about how in cereal boxes, I don't know if they do it anymore, but the, you know, they used to send you a toy, and the advertisement on the box would say, you know, buy the cereal, there's a free toy inside. And so Jerry joked about how, what if, what if the cereal companies sent you a bill later on saying, by the way, now you need to pay for this. At first it was free, then they go back on their word saying, now you have to pay for it. Well, that simple little illustration is actually often what we can think God might do to us. That he says, look, salvation is free. 
But then we can think that, well, maybe he'll bill us later. So really the question is this. If we're actually honest, aren't we asking this? Will God really be merciful to us if we repent? Like, will he really be merciful or will he kind of turn our salvation into a Jesus plus our own works type of system? That's actually what we're going to see here in this text. And what God is wanting to proclaim to us is that he is he's showing us that his promise, his free promise for all those who come to Jesus Christ is that if you repent, you will have mercy. If you repent, you will have mercy. First, in order to be gripped by this text, there's actually often a lot of questions people can ask of the book of Jonah, and particularly this section, about whether we can even trust this. So before even diving in, I just want to do some apologetics to make sure we understand that, yes, we can trust this word. Well, first off, when it says in verse 6... It mentions the king of Nineveh. Now that's really strange because Nineveh uh, was not the nation. Nineveh was the city. So why would they say there was a king of Nineveh when really it would be the king of Assyria? Some people say that and say, well, that's how we can't trust the Bible here. Well, here's what's happening here. First off, the author is intending to minimize the king in contrast to God, who is the true king. The whole point of the book of Jonah, as we have seen throughout the weeks, is that God's the true ruler. God's the true king. He's the one who orchestrates all things. And so the author is actually minimizing who the king is, even though he was the ruler of Assyria. But then some people say, well, also how can we know that the Bible's true here. How is this not just a parable or a myth? Well, even in 1 Kings 21 verse 1, it calls King Ahab the king of Samaria rather than him having the greater rule that he had. So even elsewhere in Scripture, it will talk about someone who, you know, for example, the president of the United States. He's just the president of Oklahoma. It minimizes the role of showing that actually God's the one who rules over even though Nineveh was not the capital of Assyria right then and there, records actually show us that Nineveh, it would eventually be the capital of Assyria. But in this time, it kind of functioned as what one person calls an alternate capital. It was a, a royal residence for two previous rulers. Go to Nineveh as his alternate royal residence. So it actually would make sense that he would still be called the king of Nineveh. There's also something else going on here too when it talks about the king of Nineveh is that for the Israelites it would have recalled to them the king of Sodom from Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Remember we talked about that a little bit last week when in verse 4, Jonah called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That word, that Hebrew word for overthrown is what was described of Sodom and Gomorrah, how God overthrew them because of their evil. Now why does that matter for us? You see, Israel would have always had almost this motto in life, don't be Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't be them. 
And so now, actually, Nineveh, who was as wicked as Sodom and Gomorrah, they are repenting. But yet what's crazy is that Israel was not. It's actually saying that you might actually be Sodom and Gomorrah unless you respond the way the Ninevites did. So that's how we can trust, for one, that what the king of Nineveh means. But then some people also say, well, how do we know a revival of an entire city? How do we know that could even happen? Well, one thing is, once again, people love to say that maybe the book of Jonah is just poetry or it's just a parable or a myth. It's just a, you don't have to take it literally, but it just is a story that you can take lessons from. Well, that's not the way actually Jesus read it. Jesus actually read it as historical narrative as real-life events that really happen. That's how Jesus read it, which means that's how we should read it. Some people say, well, it's very improbable that an entire city would repent. Well, in some ways, that's a false objection. Why? Because we actually see in other parts in Scripture where entire cities have revival. Often in the book of Chronicles, we see the kings of Judah, the southern tribes of the nation of Israel, they would have a reformation and a revival. We even see, since the New Testament in church history, entire cities have revival. Think about this. Think about Wittenberg with Martin Luther. Think about the stuff that John Calvin did in Geneva. So for one, that's not the best objection, but see, we also see something else. Within Assyria's recent history up to this moment with Jonah, there were famines, riots, possible earthquakes, some historians show. But there was also a total solar eclipse. Now, why does that matter? Because for the people of Assyria, they would have seen that as an omen from the gods, they would have seen it as something horrible is about to happen unless we change our ways. They would have been very likely to have listened to Jonah's message after experiencing all these things because they would have wanted to listen to see what does one of the gods say. Here's what one of the omens in that day says. Here's what one historian gives us. That because of those things like famines and riots and total, total solar eclipse, one of the omen texts says, the king will surely be deposed and killed, and a worthless fellow will seize the throne. Now, <laughs> if, that, if I read that and then these things start happening, I'm thinking if I'm the king, oh no. <laughs> the king, and it says this, the king will die. Rain from heaven will flood the land. There will be a famine. And there was a famine. Another part of the text says, a deity will strike the king and consume the land. The city walls will be destroyed. You see, actually, how they might have been prepped a little bit. It even says, here's really interesting, even those texts, it even mentions how the animals would receive divine wrath. Doesn't that actually make sense of why the king of Nineveh says, man and beast must repent? Because that's how they would have read it. We actually see elsewhere that um, in these historical records that there were calls, there were decrees for the people of Assyria to mourn and to pray. So in other words, what we can say even before getting into the text is this. Is that actually there is good historical 
literary and historical, what I just said historical, but all that evidence to say you can trust this. And that's what a lot of academic scholars have shown. Now, one last note before we dive in. And this is an important application. Because people will say, well, how do we know Nineveh's repentance was true? Because later in the book of Nahum, yes, that is a real book in the Bible, it says that then God's going to show wrath to them because they did not repent. Here's actually what the book of Jonah is telling us. It's showing us that no one is grandfathered into the kingdom of heaven. It's showing us that just because you are a child of parents who believe, God does not owe it to you for you to be saved. It actually shows us that Nineveh's repentance only lasted a generation. It's showing us the importance of godly parenting, of biblical education in the church and home, of proclaiming the gospel of grace, not a system of law. It's showing us the importance of discipling people, of raising up new leaders. So actually through all of this, here's what this text is doing. It's reaching out to Grace Presbyterian Church in Stillwater, Oklahoma in the 21st century, and it's saying this. God does not owe your children or the next generation salvation. So grasp hold of his grace. Promote repentance. Show them Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. Now, let's dive into the word. Look at verse 6 again. It says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. God's word empowers repentance. God's word, or excuse me, God's people will embrace repentance. God's leaders will promote repentance, and God's pardon is promised to those who repent. Verse 6, God's word empowers repentance. You see there, the word reached the king of Nineveh. Jonah kind of disappears from the story here. And I think that's actually a really good note because God does, he loves to use his people. But he will also go beyond our efforts. He will go beyond our works. The emphasis here is on God's action rather than Jonah. God is going to make sure that his word reaches the people that will be saved. We were talking this past Thursday about what predestination is and what it means. And one of the great promises of predestination is this. Is that you can believe that God will get all of his people. Amen? He will get them. He will bring them in. Our job, our responsibility is just to be faithful to the word. And we let God handle the rest. When it says the word reached the king, there's actually this really interesting meaning to this Hebrew word. It can also mean it touched the king or it afflicted the king. Now that does not sound too comfortable, does it? It's interesting, this word for touch, it kind of conveys this double meaning, which means this. When the word comes to you, based on your response, there will be blessing or cursing. If you believe the word, there will be blessing. But if you refuse to believe the word, there will be cursing. And it reaches to the king and it afflicts him, it lays him 
low, it touches the finger on the pulse of his conscience. And that's how God moves him to repent. You see, actually, often what happens in the preaching of the word is that God will afflict the comfortable. And some of us, some of us are too comfortable right now. Too comfortable in our sin. Too comfortable in our worldliness. And God, by his word, puts the finger on the pulse and saying, your sin will kill you unless you repent. But then God's word also does this. Those like the king who are afflicted in their conscience by God's word, he comforts you. And he shows you Jesus. And he says, here is who you have by your repentance. Amen? God's word is powerful. It is what enables us to repent. And you would have to ask the question, for a people as awful as the Ninevites, and if you heard some of those quotes from last week, what could possibly be powerful enough to change these people? What could possibly be powerful enough to change the students at Oklahoma State? What could possibly be powerful enough to convert my child who is headfirst into rebellion? God's word. Amen? God's word. Not other strategies. Not other theories. God's word. You see, God, by his word, created all things out of nothing. It's not as if he spoke and then he gathered raw material and then created. But when he spoke, things came into being. And the same God who creates things out of nothing, he recreates us even though we have nothing to offer him. Amen? His word recreates you. The power of God's word is seen in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The whole point of that text there is showing us that it's actually as we look to Jesus Christ, we're transformed into the same image. And that Greek word for transform in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is where we get our word metamorphosis. Isn't that awesome? The Bible's just, it's, it's amazing. Hebrews 4.12 also says this, the word of God is living and active. God, we don't add anything to his word but he is still speaking by his word. I love what our Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 76, says that repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's, it's worked in the heart of a sinner by the Holy Spirit and the word of God. How do I grow in repentance? By soaking in the word of God. That's how. You see, what's amazing is this. Because the word is powerful. Brothers and sisters, you can walk out of these doors, or, or maybe the side doors. You can walk out of these doors after this service, and you can know that God is at work. Amen? No matter how sinful you are. No matter how awful of a week it's been. No matter how, 
how dark and cloudy your vision has been, and you can't see the sun on the other side of the clouds. God is at work. What's amazing is this. That's not because of the power of the preacher. <laughs> you, you better hope it's not. It's not because of the eloquence of the sermon. It's certainly not because of the captivating stories. It can be a terrible sermon, but if it's faithful to the word of God, he will work. Amen? That's why we attend it. That's even why I myself sit under the very preaching of the word, which is crazy. You see, it means this, that if you're struggling to repent, if you're struggling with sin, what do you do? You come to the word. You come to the word in your own private worship. But you also, and especially, come to the word in public worship. We often think, well, why is that person here today? I know what they did last night. I know what they posted on social media this week. Well, my friends, this, where else would they go? Is this not the place where you hear about God's grace? This is the place for sinners. This is the hospital of God. We actually should be always looking at each other and saying, of course they're here. <laughs> because this is what we need. It's amazing that God, by his word, is enabling us to repent. It's his word of, of grace, of showing us his son, that his son took on flesh and he, he lived that perfect life. He needed no repentance. But then he, he died on the cross and he took the wrath of God for those who who need to repent. And he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and now it's this. He is giving every one of us in here a free invitation saying, come to me. I will grant you repentance. I will help you grow. Stop relying on yourself and cling to me. That's your invitation this morning. It's amazing that that's what God does. He proclaims his word to us, and it empowers us to repent. But what happens? What happens to God's people whenever God's word is proclaimed? Well, look at second half of verse 6 through verse 8. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. God's people, when God's word is proclaimed, God's people will embrace repentance. What is not repentance. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it's always good to review. Repentance is not this. It's not the Roman Catholic doctrine of penance, which says this, and in any form of this, this is not repentance, that you would go and do X, Y, and Z, and then, upon completion of that, then you will be forgiven. That is not repentance. It's also not the Arminian notion of this, that what is repentance, they would say, well, it's the quality of your repentance. Have you done a good enough job of repenting? Then you can be forgiven. That's not what repentance is. 
It's not focusing on if we have enough emotion or resolve or enough victory over our sin. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is not earning. Repentance is receiving. I love what Brian Chappell says in his book, Holiness by Grace. We can make a grave mistake by overemphasizing the human action implications of repentance. If we're not careful... We may press this idea of repentance to mean that repentance is primarily a turn from doing bad things to doing good things, or at least saying the right things to God. Repentance is not a work of turning new behaviors into good or bad behaviors into good behaviors. In other words, what he's saying is this repentance is not God looking at you saying, because you did something good, I'm going to show you mercy. That's not it. Because the moment repentance earns God's grace is the moment it is not God's grace. You see that? But this is also a very important note for us today. Especially in our age where so many ideas and popular thought is being promoted, we often downplay our sin. We excuse our sin. We minimize our sin. We, we play the blame game like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. That is not repentance. I remember hearing a story one time about a woman who was caught in sin. And after a long process of talking with her, interviewing her, it, it, it was right for her to come before the session or at least a smaller group of the session so that she might confess her sin, and, and at first the meeting was going great. She seemed like she was confessing her sin, and seemed like she had genuine sorrow, and so they, they were really encouraged, and they just kept asking her questions. But then it turned out after a while that the first part of her confession was merely rehearsed. Because then the more they asked questions, she started to blame shift, until Slowly but surely it turned into everyone else was the problem, but I don't need to repent. Repentance is not blame shifting. It's owning. It's agreeing with the prophet Nathan when he came to David and he said, you are the man, and it's saying, I am the man. What is repentance? Well, it literally means to turn. That's actually what we see here. In that text, it is to turn. I actually, I hate doing this because playing football, I was a wide receiver. I just hate this so much. But a defensive back, it just makes me cringe saying that. Um, a defensive back is taught this. That whenever a wide receiver is running deep, when they backpedal, at some point they have to turn and run. I just... I just forgive me for that. It just makes me cringe. Um, I, I tell our students we don't raise wide, uh, we don't raise DBs in our household. It's only wide receivers. Um, but I do think that's a good example. You have to turn the opposite way if you're going to go there. Repentance means to turn. It means to turn 180 degrees. It means to change your mind. It means to bring someone back. It's actually the picture of an army that would turn back against. A formidable enemy. You see, here's actually what repentance is in light of that last picture. Repentance is whenever enemies of God who are fighting against God 
they take out their white flag and they wave it and they say, you're going to crush me unless I surrender. That's what repentance is. Repentance is responding to God's mercy. It's responding to the fact that if we don't repent, there will be wrath upon us because the gospel proclaims this. For God to be holy, for God to be just and righteous, he must punish sin. You hear that? The question is this. Will God's wrath go down on Jesus or you? There is no in-between. Will it go down on Jesus or you? Repentance is believing God's message and saying, I trust that Jesus is the only one who can save me. I trust that I have no hope in myself. And here's what's amazing. Repentance only comes from God enabling us to do it. Amen? You ask the question, when Jesus comes and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, if Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, the question is this. Jesus, how can you tell people to repent when they don't have the ability to do it? Right? Because God grants it. Amen? God's the one who gives it. God's the one, as Acts eleven eighteen says, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, it was God who gave the Ninevites repentance. You see there that it says that the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth, sackcloth and sat in ashes. It's this, it's this incredible picturesque uh, portrayal of what humility is. When it says covered, it actually in the Hebrew, it's, it's an intensified action. It's out of the sense of his filthiness, of his odiousness, and he's, he's grieving over his sin. He's hating his sin, and that's what repentance is. It's actually having genuine sorrow. We, we have to remember this. There actually is godly shame that we must feel. We, you actually should feel shame when you sin. Now, do you live in that shame if you're a believer? No. <laughs> but you should feel shame that should drive you to Jesus. The notion that we have today is that if we feel any shame at all, that it's merely a mental disorder and that we just don't even need to think about that. But oftentimes what God is doing is that when we experience shame, now it needs to be rightly examined. You need to hear me on that. Because sometimes it can be just in the realm of mental health and you need someone to help you with that. But oftentimes when we have shame is that God is actually showing us, yes, you are sinning in this area and you do need to repent. God intends to humble us. He wants to show us that our sin is evil, but he also wants to show us this. That our righteousness is evil. That the righteousness that you try to earn by yourself, you need to repent of that. It's not just that you need to repent of your sins. You need to repent of your good deeds. Because all of our good deeds are stained. 
only the righteousness of Christ is sufficient. And that means that as a Christian who is growing in salvation, that means this, that over time sin will taste more and more bitter. You will actually, as weird as this is, even though you're growing in godliness, you will often feel more ungodly than you have in the past because you're more sensitive to what's going on. See, that's also why you need to make sure that you don't live in ungodly shame and that you continue to look to Jesus. Repentance is also seen in being dependent. You see, the king here, he clearly knew that he had nothing in himself to recommend him to God. He, he was in total reliance upon God's promise of mercy, and that's what repentance is for us. It is learning to say that only in God can I find mercy. I cannot find mercy by my own doing. I cannot find mercy even by my own repentance. Because it is God who grants me repentance. It is all of grace. It's all of mercy. But you also notice this too. What else happens in repentance? He says in verse 8, Let them call out mightily to God. Romans 8 shows us that how do you know if you're a child of God? By crying out, Abba, Father. Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever seen your sin and it makes you want to cry out even just silently, maybe even now, and you say, Lord, have mercy? That's a good sign, my friends. If it, if it is a growing natural response of us that when we see our sin, we say, Lord, have mercy, you can be assured that you are a child of God. Amen? People who repent are people who are praying, longing, asking for God to forgive us. Now, all of that is really important because there's a distinction between repentance and the fruit of repentance. Repentance will always bear fruit, but the fruit itself is not repentance. We have to realize this because this is true, that whenever we look at someone who is repenting, often more will happen that is unseen before it becomes seen. Oftentimes, we need to trust that more happens underneath the soil before fruit is shown. While we need to be patient with people. But yet, even amidst that, it's always this. Repentance is seeing Jesus, seeing my sin, and realizing that Jesus is the only person who can save me. Amen? My friends, let me ask you a question. Have you repented? Are you repenting? See, the church, that's all it is. The church is just a group of repenting people. That's why we say this. This is where you should be. This isn't a place for people who have it all together. Matter of fact, the people who think they have it all together, that's what you need to repent of. This is the place for cursed broken, fallen sinners to come to Jesus Christ and to look to him and say, no matter what's going on in my life, he has enough mercy for my sin. And that's who I look to. God empowers his people to repent by his word. He also, by his word, he helps his people to embrace repentance. But then we also see from the king of Nineveh 
that God's leaders promote repentance. Let us see this very importantly for today is that God's leaders and godly leaders, whether in the home or in friendships or in jobs or church, whatever it might be, God's leaders promote repentance. You see in verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that we may not perish. The king of Nineveh is promoting repentance. Not only does he personally repent, but he is pleading with other people to repent. And that must always be both and, never either or. To be a godly leader is not this. It's to look at other people saying, you need to repent, but I'm fine. But it's also not this. It's not saying, well, I need to repent, but my sheep, my flock, I'm just going to let them come to their own conclusion. Godly leadership is me repenting and helping in all, of, in all the opportunities that God gives me to promote repentance. You see that? You see here that actually the revival, the repentance, actually happens before the king even starts. In other words, this was not just a, a government peer pressure, but it seems to be very genuine of what's happening here. The king is merely joining in on what's happening. You see, our leaders, godly leaders, need to model repentance. They need to help promote repentance. But there is another notion here that we can't forget. That government and government officials are not above repentance. Government and government officials are not above repentance. Matter of fact, no pastor, no elder, no deacon, no politician, no CEO, no teacher, parent, team captain, no colonel, no doctor, no one is above repentance. All of us in here stand under that. And we are all called to repent in every area of our life, especially the part that we want to hold on to most. That's what God is showing us here. That actually true leaders, it's not that they don't need repentance. They are the ones who are striving to lead by repenting, right? That means this. Your leaders, we will sin against you. I don't know if you know that, but we will. But the mark is not being sinless. That's, not impo that's impossible. We know from 1 John, if you act like you have no sin, then you might want to question your salvation. But rather, a true leader is someone who confesses their sin and is striving to repent of their sin and looking to Jesus. Amen? When he declares to the people, it says he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. It's a declarative verb in the Hebrew, and it's as if he's trying to say, we are in an awful condition. We must repent. Their sin was very public, and because of that, it called for public confession, public sorrow, public repentance. And once again, we see in the book of Jonah, don't we see how quicker other people are to respond to God than Jonah was? But ultimately, what we see here is this, is that there is a greater leader who promotes repentance more than anyone else. Because Jesus himself is the true king. Jesus is the one who arose from his throne. He's the one who removed his royal robes so that he might be veiled in our flesh. 
He's the one who covered himself in humanity while never ceasing to be God. He was the one who was born into poverty and underneath the law. He was the one who descended even to death itself, taking the curse of God's wrath. And he was the one in his first sermon, he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen? And all godly leaders follow Jesus. But then really the question, the tension builds up to this. How's God going to respond? Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said uh, he would do to them, and he did not do it. How, what are we to make of this when it says God relented, that God turned from doing what he was going to do? Well, here's what we know from Scripture. We know from Malachi 3.6 where it says, I, the Lord, do not change. It's a theological word there that is called immutability. Mutability meaning mutate, to change, but God is not mutable. God, in his being and in his divine decree, he does not change. But what in the world does this mean? Well, we know that God does not have a plan B. God, if he had a plan B, how would we not know that he has a plan C or a plan triple Y or a quadruple Z or whatever you want to go to? And which plan is he on? That wouldn't give us any hope. See, actually, if God were to change, see, follow me here, if God were to change for the better or for the worse, then we're implying that if he changed for the better, then he was not God before. And if he changed for the worse, then he would become less than God. So therefore, that can't happen. Here's what we're seeing here in this text. This is what's called, get ready for this one, anthropomorphic language. There you go. Uh, spelling bee time, anthropomorphic. Just ask Jake Durham about spelling bees if you haven't seen that video. Um, it's amazing. Anthropomorphic language, what does that mean? It means this. Human language to describe our actions is portrayed onto God. It's like saying this, that the Father in heaven, he leaps with joy over seeing someone repent. But we know God does not have a body, so he's not literally leaping. It's also this, it's not identical, but it's analogical. It's kind of like saying this, I remember... Uh, in uh, high school basketball, uh, we would often play right after the girls' teams would play. And we, would, they, we had a girl on our team who was awesome, and we would often say, she's a beast. Now, is she literally a beast? No. But it was an analogy because a beast was someone who could not be contained. So we're not saying she's identical to a beast, but there's an analogy there because they could not stop her. That's what it's saying here. It's kind of also like saying this, that whenever it says that God relented, it, it's from the, our perspective. So think about this. You go outside right now and you would say, the sun has risen. But did the sun literally rise? No, it's, it's from our perspective. But that language is very, very normal, right? That's what's happening here. Is that it's giving us something of a picture of what God is doing. Now, why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Because God has given a promise saying this. 
if you repent, my wrath will turn from you and go elsewhere. Amen? My wrath will no longer be on you, but it will go on someone else at you repenting. Ezekiel 18, 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. That word for turn is the same word used here saying to repent. It means this, is that no matter how bad things are in your life, no matter what sin you've committed this week or in 40 years or however long, there is no sin that is so great that God cannot forgive. Amen? It is just turning to Him and saying, Lord, have mercy. That's why we must repent today. That's why we must respond today. Jesus Himself says in Luke 11, He says that if we don't repent, but we just keep begging for signs and proofs that He really is God, He says that, on the last day, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but behold, something greater than Jonah is here. If I can just lovingly challenge us here is this. Maybe you're sitting here saying, if God would just show me another sign, then I would believe. But my friend, Jesus is the ultimate sign. You have heard Jesus be proclaimed to you. You do not need more proof. You do not need a miracle to be seen. Plenty of people throughout Scripture, even Judas Iscariot himself, saw all of Jesus' miracles and did not repent. What you need is for God to grant you faith and repentance. Amen? That's what we need. And Jesus is calling all of us by his grace and mercy. He is saying, look, turn to me. You're not too far gone. Look to me. I'm able to save you. You turn from your sin, for they will do nothing but harm to you. And you look to me, and I will cleanse you. I love the story of Rosaria Butterfield. She's a former professor at Syracuse University. She used to embrace full-on the LGBTQ lifestyle, and she even taught that subject at Syracuse. If someone knew about this, it was her. She actually, at one point, she wanted to write a book about conservative Christianity, and she says this, After my tenure book was published, I used my position to advance the under, understandable allegiances to, of a leftist lesbian professor talking about herself. She said, My life was happy. My life was meaningful and full. I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me, to do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, the Bible. When she read the Bible, she read it again, and then she read it again, and she read it again. And someone even as what we would think as far gone as her, do you want to know what happened? She turned, and she repented. And matter of fact, she's one of the foremost writers about speaking against those things and showing them the grace of God. Amen? My friends, the word of God empowers us to repent. And when we repent, God turns his wrath away from us and he pours it on Jesus Christ. Don't you want that? So what you, all you have to do is just believe. 
I've gone too long, but I love you guys. Let me pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you for your mercy in granting us repentance. We thank you for your mercy in hearing your word. And oh, Father, we're asking that you would continue to enable us yet again another day, another week of repenting. Father, help us to embrace Jesus Christ as we see him embrace us. Oh, we thank you. We ask all this in his name. Amen.